hope we're working. Hey, open your Bibles up uh, to 1 John. That's where we are. If you're a guest with us, we're in a series called Walking in the Light Together uh, in 1 John. And we started out the first few weeks focusing on the what does it mean to be walking in the light. And so last week, this week, next few weeks, we'll be focusing more on the together part. Uh, we're finally there. Uh, so, uh, in fact, this sermon today is going to feel a little bit like a two-part sermon that we're going uh, to finish that message up next week, actually. So, if you would, grab your Bibles, open them up. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to go uh, verses 11 through 18 this morning. 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay, our, lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you as your little children. We thank you that you love us, that you speak to us, you talk to us, and tell us what is true. God, I pray this morning that uh, you would awaken us to the fact that you're here in the room with us, talking to us. Lord, I pray that you'd use me, help me speak boldly, clearly, plainly, and helpfully so that Crossway would be the church that you called her to be. And so would you change lives? Would you speak to hearts? Would you conv convince minds? Would you do all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, who is resurrected and is alive? In his name we pray, amen. This week, the world experienced something that will go down in the history books forever. No, I'm not talking about the latest election scandal. I'm talking about something a little bit different. No one laughed? Thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, I'm talking about, you guys are too serious. At the 112th World Series featuring the, uh, the Indians and the Cubs. Did anyone watch that? Game 7? Okay. Pretty amazing, right? After 108 years. Uh, I can't believe i got to say that again. 108 years. 108 years of baseball flub-ups and mistakes and losses, the Chicago Cubs finally surprised millions and millions of fans and pulled off an epic World Series win after a 
three to one come from behind win. I mean, that, that's not just a win. That's baseball history. That's a big deal. Those who love the Cubs have just received a little slice of heaven on earth. And I got to give a shout out to my friend listening to the podcast, Chris Hanner. Way to go, buddy. I'm happy for you. But for the rest of America, it begs the question, why? Why? Why do so many millions of people love a team that is known and has a, had a reputation for losing, choking, making mistakes, squandering leads and opportunities, 108 years worth of mistakes and losses, and people still love them? Why? It's because they're sick is why. That's why, right? No, that's not really why. The answer is very simple, and it's pretty plain. People feel like the Chicago Cubs belong to them. That's why. The Cubs are part of their family, so to speak. That's why they still love them. They were part of their parents' family, their grandparents' family, their great-grandparents' family. They belong to you, so you love them. That, that's just what you do. No matter how many times they disappoint you or make you mad, you love the family that you belong to. That's what you do, right? Last week we learned that those who regularly practice righteousness have God as their true father. Today, John is going to get a little bit more specific about what he means by practicing righteousness because he actually has something pretty specific in mind. We know that for the apostle, this is something that's very practical, it's visible, and it's non-theoretical. At the end of the day, he's going to tell us that practicing righteousness means loving our siblings in the faith. For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, we're loving our siblings in the faith. Why? Because if we truly belong to God, then we belong to them. And yeah, I said that the way you heard it. If we belong to God, then we belong to them. See, the big idea John's telling us today is that children of God practice righteousness by loving their spiritual siblings. So we're going to talk about why that's important, what does that look like, and then what empowers us to actually go do that. You guys ready? You don't look ready. Are you ready? Good. All right. Loving our spiritual siblings is important because it verifies we have eternal life. It verifies that we have eternal life. Check this out, verses 14 through 15 in the text. We know, we know, he wants us to know, he wants us to be certain, he wants us to be sure. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, you could say the brothers, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. You ever had a meeting with a coworker or maybe a friend, and you had, in that conversation you're talking about like the next action steps you need to take on a, maybe a project or something? And so you're, you're kind of hashing out the details. These are the next ac action steps we're going to take. We're going to do this, I'm going to do that, and you discuss that. You merely talk it out. You, you use invisible words. That's what words are. They're invisible. It's sound waves, right? 
And then you find out later maybe that there was a breakdown in communication. She said, well, we agreed to do X. And you said, no, no, we didn't agree to do X. We agreed to do Y. I was there. And you find out that there's a breakdown in the communication. But, but let's say you have that same conversation over email. Or maybe you had that conversation, you follow it up with email. You have something, to, something physical that you can look at. And now you can see what you actually said, what you actually claimed and agreed on to do. The conversation becomes more real because you were looking at actual words on a physical screen. In other words, the email is visible proof that verifies or falsifies what we claim we said. You guys tracking with me? In that same way, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ verifies or falsifies our claim. It works the same way. Outward acts of love verifies our claim that we love God. We are born of God and we have eternal life. Loving one another is that big of a deal. It is a gospel issue. It is not a we can agree to disagree on this kind of issue, okay? I want that to land on you with full effect. It's a big deal to God. If we do not love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we remain in death, period. John says that when it comes to the church, God's people. We either fundamentally hate them or we fundamentally love them. If our life is marked by loving them, it indicates that we have received eternal life. That's real life that God gives to us and never passes away. If our life is marked by hating them, then it indicates that we have not actually received eternal life. Okay, well, what do you mean by hating? What do you mean by fundamentally hating them? I'm glad you asked. Maybe you're like me when you first heard this passage being read or you read it for yourself and you thought, you know what? You, you kind of thought to yourself, like, I'm not like Cain. Like, I haven't literally murdered my brother. In fact, I don't even literally have a brother. So I am so glad that this doesn't apply to me. Whew. I, I don't know. That, that's how I felt as soon as I read it. Whoa, get that away from me. But remember, remember why Cain murdered his brother Abel. In fact, John tells us why. He hated his brother first. Murder is just the logical extension. It's just the physical manifestation of hate. That's what it is. And how did he get to the point of hating his very own brother? His heart became cold towards him. He didn't care. That's what a cold heart is. I don't care. John gives us a clue on how he defines hating someone in verse 17. Check this out right here. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, yet closes his heart against him, yet closes his heart against him, there's the definition. Hatred means uh, to subtly callous our hearts against someone made in the image of God to the point that we don't care about them. It's got very little to do with like anger and some kind of an emotion, although that definitely happens and it overlaps. Are you tracking with me? It's something that's happening on the inside, whether we have that emotion to, to, to pair with it or not. 
He says we close our hearts, close our hearts to our spiritual siblings, and we do this in a couple of ways, family. Check this out. One way we do it is by despising their presence so much that we just separate from them. We just physically separate from them. I don't want to be there with them. The thought is this, I don't need them. I don't need them. And so I refuse to be near them. That is hate in action. That is a sign that we're slowly and subtly closing our hearts against them. And we can dress it up any way we want, but that's what's happening. But there's a second way that we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are present. We're actually present among them, but we ignore them. And we ignore their needs. Do you know what I'm talking about? We just look right past them. We walk right past them. We talk right past them. We ignore them, and we ignore their needs. Like Cain, we sarcastically say to God, what, 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 am I, am I my brother's keeper? Someone else will take care of them. Someone else will take care of that. Someone else will do that. That's someone else's job. Am I my mother's keeper? It's saying in our heart about our spiritual siblings in an unemotional way, hey, nothing personal. I don't care. I don't care. Nothing personal. Not angry. I'm here for me. I'm here for me. When this is how we habitually think, family, when this is our fundamental pattern of viewing the local church, this is hating our brothers and sisters. It proves, it verifies that we have not really passed from death over to life, regardless of how loudly we claim that we love God and know God. It's a big deal. But get this, when we habitually practice loving our brothers and sisters, when we fundamentally, I'm not talking about perfectly, I'm talking about at our core, when we fundamentally love the local church, the actual people that are a part of it, it makes real our claim to know God and be born of God. It verifies that claim is true. Remember, John says, this is the message we've heard from the beginning. This is not some secondary, second-tier add-on that came later. This is part and parcel of the gospel message. Amen? Amen. This is original. Jesus said this in John 13. Check this out. He says to his disciples, by this. By what? By this. He's getting ready to say it. All people will know. There's that no word again. He wants people to be sure, certain, assured. They will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John is saying what Jesus is saying. The love for our brothers and sisters does not make someone born again. It is the primary sign that someone has been born again. So what does loving our spiritual siblings uh, look like? Well, Loving them looks like dying and supplying. Love looks like dying and supplying. Verse 16, by this we know love. Okay, so here's how you know it. Here's a definition right here. 
that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love looks like dying. John points to Jesus as a supreme example for us on what love looks like. Since Jesus laid down his life for us, he says we should lay down our lives for our siblings, one another. Love looks like dying, but not just dying. Dying so that other people will live. It's dying so other people benefit. It's dying so that other people gain. Okay? What do you think the most precious thing is to a person? Now, you might be tempted to say, well, the most precious thing to a person is their spouse. And that's pretty precious. Or maybe it's their children. Or maybe it's their freedom, their personal freedom. Or maybe it's their property, their land. But if you really think about it, I think we'd all agree that the most precious thing to a person is their life. I mean, think about it. Without life, you can't enjoy any of that other stuff. You can't even have any of that other stuff, right? Loving our brother and sister means sacrificing the thing that is most valuable to you, your life, your life. Dying to yourself so that it's someone else, other people might benefit. They might have joy. This is what is supposed to make the local church stand out from every other organization on the planet, Crossway. It's what makes the church attractive to non-Christians, to non-believers that don't believe the stuff we believe. They look at us, they look what's happening, and go, what is going on there? The fact that we are so committed to each other's well-being that we are willing to sacrifice the one thing that is most valuable to us. Us! And that means that we put our preferences to the side from time to time. And that can feel like dying. Can it? Am I telling the truth? You're killing me! Don't we say that? <laughs> You're killing me! You're speaking more truth than you realize. We ought to be saying that to each other a lot. You're killing me, but I love you. You're killing me, and I love you. It means putting your preference to the side. It means trying to understand who the other person is. I don't understand why you think that way. I'm curious. I'd like to understand. I can feel like dying. Well, that's love. That's love. That means giving up our time. It's giving up our time for one another to, to get to know our siblings, to support our siblings, to guide our siblings in Christ to Christ. I want you to know Christ, and so I'm going to give up some of my time for that. I'm going to die so that you can live in Christ and know him. What would it look like, Crossway? What would it look like for us to be a church that died to ourselves regularly? Picture that. What would that look like here in Port Orchard? What do you think skeptics would say about us? What do you think agnostics and atheists would say about us? If we actually did this, we were living this truth. You know, the world says, don't listen to people. You put your opinion out there first and you put it out there hard. You don't listen, you debate. That's what the world says. 
We don't try to understand people. The world says, lobby for your preferences. You don't lobby for them, nobody else is going to, so go do that. The world says, don't give up your personal freedom for any reason or anyone. Why would you do that? But get this. Just think about this. Just think about this for a second with me. What if we were a church? What if we were a community that was countercultural in a way that matters? What if we were a church that said, you know what? I'll listen first and I'll listen longest. I love you. We did that to one another. What if we were a church that said, I'll give up my preferences for you? so that you feel welcome here, so you feel more comfortable here, so that you might know Christ here. Because I really want that for you. What if we said, I'll relinquish my rights instead of flexing them every chance that I get. I give up some of my rights so that you can flourish, so that you can have a good life, so that you can be blessed. Guys, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? What if we right here, I'm talking about right here in this room, what if we treated each other that way? We began dying to ourselves so that others could benefit. I mean, what do you think non-believers would think about that? They wander and they see that. They wander into a group we have and we hear that. They hear that. They see that. What do you think they think about that? They call, well, that's crazy. You don't give up personal freedom. You're nuts. You're dying. You're losing. That's crazy. That's what they think, Right? I think some of them would, amen? But you know what I think? I think someone would be curious. Some will call you crazy. See, we don't mind them calling us crazy for certain things, but there's, I'm, I'm touching on some, right? But I don't want them calling crazy for this. I think they'd be curious. What's going on here? Who are you people? I don't agree with the stuff you're talking about, but my gosh, the way you treat one another, I can't argue with that. Could I, be, could I belong to that community? I think it'd be crazy and wonderful. I think people would know we love Jesus. See, love looks like dying and it looks like supplying. Love looks like supplying. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The kind of love John is talking about can best be demonstrated through a commitment to the local church. When they see a whole group of us doing this for one another, there is a drawing in effect. There should be a magnet effect. That's why the local church matters and it's important. It best demonstrates, it best puts, best puts this on display. So they can't just look at an individual and go, ah, oh, that's a fluke. You can write a person off as a fluke. You can't write off a whole body crossway if we're doing this as a fluke, can you? It's a lot harder to do. And that's why it matters. An actual group filled with real people that we call our spiritual family. John will not let us escape into some kind of hypothetical love for fellow disciples to say that, that we theoretically love all Christians of all times and in all places everywhere. Because all those believers, 
that you and I are allegedly loving perfectly in our brain, guess what? They don't have real personalities that get on your nerves. And they don't have real needs that someone needs to meet. And so he won't let us escape into that. Christ's commandment is that we love one another. And it is impossible to love one another all by yourself in your head. Now, I mean, you may be spiritual, but you ain't that spiritual. Here's John's scenario in verse 17. He says this, we have resources, we see, we see, we see, these are actual physical people, we see our brother in need. He is talking about actual people that we know and we are committed to. We press in with them. You cannot love someone that you don't know because you don't know how to love them. You can't love someone that you don't know. And you can't know someone that you're not near. Is this making sense? Here is what love looks like. Committing to a local church full of real, not virtual people. Seeing the needs of those people in that body of believers and then supplying the needs with the resources that we have on hand. That is love. Love is a verb it's not merely a concept to be discussed in coffee houses. Here is the question that love asks. Are you ready? Are you ready? You can write it down. Here's the question that love asks, Crossway. What needs to be done? What needs to be done? Love walks into our Sunday worship gathering and doesn't ask, is my favorite chair taken? Love asks, what needs to be done? That's love. Love walks into the home and doesn't ask, what's for dinner? Love asks, what needs to be done? Love walks into a relationship and doesn't say, what have you done for me lately? Love asks, what needs to be done here? What needs to be done? See, being a family is more than just claiming I'm part of the family. Being a family looks like supplying needs with the money that you have, the time that you have, the skills that you have, and with the energy that you have. Love is dying, and it is supplying. So this needs to be our prayer, Crossway. If we are going to be church that is obeying the Lord, if we're going to be church that we would love to think Jesus would be pleased to bless, this needs to be our prayer. We need to pray that God would use us to meet the needs of our spiritual siblings and others who are not yet our siblings. But it's got to start here in this room first. We need to pray that we would be empowered by Christ's love for us. We need to be empowered by Christ's love for us. This is how we are able to do this. 
Can, I, can, can we just be honest with each other? All right? We're in church. Let's tell the truth. Right? Let's not lie. Hard to love one another, isn't it? Tough? Y'all are different than me. And I'm different than you, and you're different than one another. It's hard to love one another. So let's just be honest with it. Okay? Instead of faking around about that. If it is hard to love our spouse, our children, our parents, how much harder is it to love people we're not even related to by blood or by law? Hard. I'm, I'm reading Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, a little bit at night. And uh, he's created this character called the Elder in the book, if you've read the novel. Uh, the Elder is a Christian monk. He's very pious. He's devoted his whole life to God's work. He's about to die, and he knows it. He's his spiritual Yoda. All right? And there's a scene in the book, there's a scene where uh, a, a, one of the Karamazov brothers comes to visit the elder. He comes at night to visit, one, to visit the elder because he wants his blessing and he wants his wisdom. He needs his wisdom. He's going through some, some struggles and some difficulty. So the elder shares a story with one of the brothers about a doctor who visited him one time and made a confession. So he's going to share this doctor's confession. Um, I guess when you're about to die, you can share other people's confessions. I don't know. You're, you're fine with that. But here's what he says, he, and so he's, he's quoting back what the doctor said to him, this doctor who loves all people and heals people. He says, I love humanity. He's a doctor. He's a good doctor, right? He loves all people. I love humanity, he said, but I wonder at myself, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. Within 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. <laughs> One, because he's too long over dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it's always, it has always happened that the more I detest men individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity. The more that he finds that he detests people on an individual level, the more he claims and he shouts, I love people, I love all humanity. He just bangs that drum louder, the more he feels this hatred coming up in his heart. Is this making sense? I know none of you can relate to that, right? What's he showing us? Dostoevsky is showing us the same thing the apostle is showing us. It's easy to say we love one another. It's easy to say we love the body of Christ as long as they're just an invisible concept out there somewhere at some point in time. And that's easy. It's easy to convince ourselves that we love all our spiritual siblings in general. But the only way to know that love is real is if we love our siblings in particular. Right here, right now, in this church. If we can't love them in this church, you can't love them anywhere. And that's hard, isn't it? Amen. I know it is. It's hard. It's difficult. And it's difficult because we can be offensive to each other, can't we? 
sometimes purposely, sometimes accidentally. It's difficult because we can be annoying. We can be immature and respond immaturely. We can be needy. We can be ungrateful when other people do love us. I'm I'm done loving them. They didn't send me a thank you. We can hide our weaknesses instead of just coming out and being transparent. We can close our hearts. I'm fine. I'm good. Sorry, you're weak. I'm not weak. I'm good. I'm a man. I'm good. I'm strong. That's hard to love a man like that, isn't it? Or a woman like that. So as soon as we set out to love one another, in particular, we find our heart closes against each other. And this crossway is why we need, we need the gospel of Jesus to empower us to love our siblings in Christ. Check out verse 16 again. He says, by this we know love, that he that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down the lives of the brothers. Do you see the order there? The order matters. The gospel says that Jesus saw you and me. He saw us closing our hearts against God and closing our hearts against one another. He saw that we just, I just don't care. I'm not upset with you. I just don't care. I don't care to get to know you. He saw us acting that way, thinking that way, feeling that way. He saw us treating one another like Cain, who should have been looking out for his little brother. And instead of responding to you and I in righteous anger, rightful anger and judgment, he chose to love us. He chose to love us. When you and I were haters, Jesus treated us like brothers. Not like strangers, not like cousins, like brothers. Wow. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus opened his heart towards us. To us. And get this, he didn't just love us with words. That would have been easy, right? I love you, humanity. That'd been easy. And he didn't do that. He came down himself to deliver the message. He is the message. He showed us that he loved us visibly, with action, with deed, and with truth. Physically. He didn't buy, get this. And he loved us in particular. I call your name. I love you. I love you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up his life. He gave up the most valuable thing that he had, mind you. Jesus gave up his life to bring us into his family, the family of God. He was the sacrificing brother we never had so that we could be the sacrificing brother that we ought to be and are called to be. Do you believe that he did that for you? Now, let me remind you if you forgot. Do you believe that he did that for you? Yes. Because you must believe he did that. 
You, that is what you must have faith in. You must believe that he did that for you. If you're going to be able to love the people in this church, he did that for you. Willfully, gladly, laying down his life. That's commitment. That's love. I love you guys. I want to pray for you, okay? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your great love. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for ignoring one another and walking by one another and not caring. God, we pray that you would cause us to be a church that dies and supplies for one another. The people in this room that have real personalities and real faces and real issues. Jesus, I pray that you would give us the desire of love. You would give us this desire, whatever room we walk into or relationship we walk into, what needs to be done? What needs to be done? And Jesus, we thank you so much that that is the question you asked when you looked at us. Hmm, what needs to be done? I need to die so that they can live. That's what needs to be done. Oh, thank you for your love, Jesus. Help us love one another. We've been born of God. Help us love one another. Oh, you're so good to us. So show us how we can do that for real people. Give us the power that we need through the gospel and through your Holy Spirit. We love you so much, Jesus, in your name. We pray, amen, amen.